2 Peter chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse number 1. We continue our series as we have been in the last several weeks. Um, We move now to this week's sermon titled, The Goal of Godliness. The Goal of Godliness. So, we'll find in 2 Peter chapter number 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now faith is the foundation of every Christian's life. We all begin the same place. It doesn't matter if you were a more knowledgeable sinner than me. We all were sinners and we started with a foundation of faith, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says to add to that faith virtue. We looked at the value of virtue in the Christian life. Moral excellence that resembles our Savior. And to virtue, knowledge. The third week we studied the need for knowledge. This is knowing what God feel, or knowing how God feels on certain matters and then applying those to our Christian life. Verse number 6. And to knowledge, temperance. Last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at the treasure of temperance. And then, moving forward, we said, and to temperance, patience. We said the pursuit of patience. Now, we mentioned how patience only comes through difficult times. It's one thing to be, be able to be waiting on things, but that's not admirable. It's an entirely another, uh, different thing to wait on something in the midst of hard times. When the, when the boat is rocking because of the storm, it's one thing to be patient when the water is calm, but to be patient and wait on the Lord's answer and provision in the storm, that's really when patience is put to the test. And then this week we'll study this. Adding to all of these Christian graces and to patience, godliness. I'm going to speak to you tonight on what I believe is one of the biggest problems in the 21st century church. This is the biggest problem that I know of in in our church and in every church that I know of, and it is this. It is full of really good people. And that may sound very odd because, you know, if I was a member of a country club, I I would want good people people at that country club. I don't want to be out there with a bunch of drunkards that are always vulgar and cursing. I want good people to be at the places that I'm at. So if I'm a member of a country club, I want it to be good people. But church ought not be the place where only good people congregate. Now I believe that good people congregate at church. But God's goal for you It's not that you would be a good person, but that you would be a godly person. 
And I think we've all heard something to that effect before, maybe a phrase or, you know, you've, thought, you've heard somebody say, ah, this guy's a good guy, just not a very godly guy. But let me ask you, do we really know the difference? Because I don't know if we do. You see, every godly thing is good, but not every good thing is godly. Let us pray and we'll, be, and we'll begin this evening. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help me this evening as it's a very serious topic and one that could come across indifferent uh, or maybe I would say something wrong or, or maybe lead somebody down a path that that's not really uh, where we're going with the sermon. I think that everybody ought to be good, but Lord, we ought to value and pursue godliness. And so Lord, help us distinguish the difference between just being a good person and a godly Christian. Help us to understand the difference. And Lord, I feel very inadequate to describe these. I've studied and I've prepared. But Lord, we've, we've even sung about it tonight. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. And Lord, I need Thee every hour. So I cannot do what I need to do unless You help me. So my prayer is, Lord, that You would help as I stand to speak, as I've already prayed privately. I now admit publicly that I cannot do what needs to be done unless You help me. So, Father, please, I ask that you'd meet with us in our presence this evening, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, please take your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter number 6, and also 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 1 Timothy chapter number 6, and 2 Timothy chapter number 3. I'll give you some time to find those two chapters there, and we'll read just a few verses in both chapters. But see, it's very easy to spot the difference between good and evil. It's not quite so easy to find the difference between good and godly. I'll give you an example of what I mean. If we were to see someone going into Walmart, only to have to step aside to watch maybe an elderly lady who's carrying her recyclable grocery bags, or not recyclable, reusable grocery bags out to her car... She's obviously weighed down with the burden of the groceries there. And this young man, maybe imagine somebody younger, stronger, better looking than me going into Walmart. But you see this take place from your vehicle. This young man takes note of this elderly lady, grabs this elderly lady's groceries and escorts them to the car. We would uh, escort her to the car and he loads the groceries up. Now we could say... That's good. That was a kind gesture. We don't really know why he did it. He didn't have to do it, but it was a good thing that he did it. We can all agree that that's good. And we can all agree that this is bad. Say you see the same exact scenario play out where a young man steps aside and notices that this elderly lady is struggling with her groceries. The young man then offers to take the groceries. The elderly lady gives him the groceries, expecting him to help her. And then the young man realizes, these are exactly the same groceries I was coming for. He runs off and takes the groceries. Now we can all agree that's not good. It's very easy to discern the difference between good and evil. Especially when we as Christians have the Holy Spirit of God. When that still small voice inside of our spirit says, you know that's not right. You know you shouldn't be doing that. So the, the real problem is not discerning what the different or, or discerning between good and bad. 
But it becomes much more convoluted when you start to look at good and godly. Say we play out the exact same scenario where the the elderly lady's leaving Walmart. We see this situation play out where a young man's going into Walmart. He takes the groceries from uh, from the elderly lady, escorts her to the car, and the whole time he's hoping and expecting that she gives him something in return. Maybe a $5 bill, maybe a $10 bill. Now, we would say that the action that was performed was good, right? We all agreed that any time a young man helps an elderly lady the car, uh, that's a good action. But that is not a godly action. See, Christ came to minister not to be ministered unto. Christ came to serve expecting nothing in return. And we are commanded to do so as well. So... It's good that the young man escorts the elderly lady to the car, but it is godly for the young man to escort her to the car, give her the groceries, expecting nothing in return. You see, the difference is we don't know what his intentions were. We don't know what the conversation he was having inside of his mind was. You know, the voices inside your head. You have them too, don't you? Okay, we all have them. You don't know what he was saying to himself. Maybe the whole time on the way to the car, he was saying, man, I hope that I get some money. I hope that she gives me something on the side that would help with my whatever I'm going to go buy. Maybe she gives me a 10. Maybe she gives me a 20. Or maybe it wasn't even that he was wanting payment. Maybe, and this might fit more of our situations, maybe he just wanted other people to see him doing something so kind. You ever been there? And here's the struggle is oftentimes we start out in a godly manner only to get halfway through and realize how cool the thing that we're doing is. And then our godly manner, mannerisms and our godly motives turn into good at best. Well, let's take note. The second Peter is not saying that we should add to our faith goodness. We are to add to our faith godliness. So how do we tell the difference? Well, 1 Timothy chapter number 6, obviously these letters are written by the Apostle Paul to his understudy, his pupil, his son in the faith, Timothy. And Paul is warning Timothy about false teachers, false prophets that would arise in his ministry. Now here's something to consider. Why would Paul, after spending all of this time with Timothy need to warn him in both letters that he writes about these people. It would seem that after spending all of that time with Paul, Timothy ought to be able to spot a fraud, right? I mean, have you ever been somewhere and you just look at somebody, you meet them for the first time, you say, yeah, that guy, there's something wrong there. You would think Timothy would have had some of that discretion, some of that discernment, some of that wisdom built up. But Paul says, Timothy, I've got to warn you about some guys. And when you read about them, the list just sounds so bad. But obviously it's not all bad, or else Paul wouldn't have to warn him about them. Obviously there's something about their ministry, something about their message that is attractive. Something that you could even qualify as good. And that's why Paul's having to warn him. I'll let you see what I'm talking about. 1 Timothy chapter number 6. We'll start reading in verse number 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, 
even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, into the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy and strife and railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. And he says this to Timothy. He says, from such withdraw thyself. Now, why wouldn't Timothy already be able to tell that those guys aren't, aren't, shouldn't be the guys you should be hanging around with? I mean, it would seem obvious. With the time spent around Paul, shouldn't he have had this discernment already? But there was something that was decent about these men. At least the show was decent. And notice verse number, uh, verse number, uh, let's see, number, uh, where are we at? Verse number six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul is clearly instructing Timothy about what godliness is and what some other people might consider good is not necessarily godly. In fact, Paul uses godliness three times in that passage alone. He's trying to let him know not everybody that has good qualities is a godly individual. Now take your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's actually a very similar passage of Scripture. He wrote it to him in 1 Timothy. Now he writes it to him in 2 Timothy again. Verse number 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. Now, did y'all just read verses 1 through 4 with me? Does that sound like anything that you would characterize as godly? And they're lovers of their own selves. They're covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient. These guys are not the best kind of guys. And yet, even Paul says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Verse number five, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. And these men are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's the difference between good and godly? Obviously, Timothy spent all this time with Paul. Timothy ought to know better, but it's not always so easy to detect as we might first expect. Godliness can be defined as a reverence or respect. Specifically, in our relationship with God, piety towards God, meaning reverencing Him above all else, that is godliness. So, if we're going to be able to tell the difference between them, we'll, we'll notice, first of all, this evening, three distinctions between good and godly. Number one, I wish I would have alliterated these and made it all preachery, but I just couldn't. I tried. I couldn't figure out how to. So, this is the best you get. Good things always completely align with Scripture. Or, I'm sorry, godly things always completely align with Scripture. Good things don't. 
If we're going to believe that this book is our final authority, it ought to be our final authority. And I look around at current Christendom and I notice that there's a lot of people with good ideas that are not necessarily godly ideas. Churches that are participating in good functions that are not necessarily godly functions. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, the Bible says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ into the doctrine which is according to godliness. These false teachers and these men who had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. Maybe they were good men. Maybe they had certain qualities. Maybe they were good preachers. Maybe they, they, they were good in, 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 at least in certain areas. And Paul says they were de-emphasizing Scripture and they were changing what Scripture was saying. You can see it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as well, verse number 7. They are ever learning and never coming, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Some of the wrongest people are the smartest people. Just because a guy uses words with more than three syllables does not mean he is right. Just because somebody has more degrees than you does not mean they're right. Go ask any secular atheistic scientist how this world came to be and they will immediately begin to spew a bunch of foolishness on you and they have more degrees than a thermometer. Uh, Knowledge does not necessarily mean it is truth. And everything in the Christian life that is godly will absolutely agree with this book. Anytime we begin to get ideas or make suggestions outside of this book, we are in error. Second Timothy chapter 3, that's actually one of the purposes of that chapter. Notice in verse number 10, Paul compares himself to these men, the, 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 the wicked men that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of, thereof. Notice in verse number 10, Paul said, But thou hast fully known my doctrine... The manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience. Timothy, you know me. And he says in verse 15, even though you know me, here's the most important thing. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Even Paul is saying, Timothy, I don't care how much you read about these men. I don't care how impressed with these men you are. I don't care how cool they might be, how much they might seem to be accomplishing. You know me, and the be-all, end-all, trump-all is Scripture. He says, though I or an angel preach some other gospel to you, don't listen to it, Timothy. Understand that Scripture is the most important thing in life and everything that is godly in this life will agree with God's written holy word. I was reading the other day about a preacher who started a church in California. It began to grow very rapidly. I will not tell you his name. Uh, There's no really need to look it up. Uh, But I, I read about this man and he started a church, began to grow very rapidly. And as the church was growing so rapidly, he decided to announce to his church that he would be resigning. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that's usually not the way it works. A 
pastor is pastoring a church that's growing and thriving and successful and they announce that they're resigning, that usually comes after the growth spurt, okay? And it was odd that this man did this. It came out years later that this man had been getting spoken to by God. He was dealing with some things and and he decided to start a new kind of church. And what he did is he, he began to think one day that his church, which was a multi-million dollar complex, one of the largest churches in California, was costing so much money to run that he could eliminate all the overhead costs of church by just starting individual homes in, uh, individual churches and homes. The homeowners would be the pastor and he would kind of set up this network of different churches and, and they would have no utility bill other than the air conditioner that the homeowner was already paying. They would have no real concerns. The, the pastor wouldn't be on salary and, uh, and uh, there would be really no cost to running the church. And you know what that is? That's a good idea. That is not a godly idea. From a business perspective... That makes a lot of sense. But from a Bible perspective, it is completely in error. You say, why is it in error? Well, because the fact that the Bible says that a preacher or a bishop is worthy of double honor means that it's okay for a bishop or a preacher to be paid. In fact, it's a position worthy of double honor, meaning the salary you pay him ought to be a comfortable one, one where he can live on. And, 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 and so the Bible does not frown upon a preacher making money. And I, I, sometimes I'm so baffled by people that think that preachers ought to live like paupers. You don't. Why should my truck be breaking down if yours ain't? But the Bible says that it's okay for a pastor to be, to, 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 Make money, and, and, and in fact, it says those that, especially those that labor in word and in and, and deed, those that are really striving for the cause of the ministry, those are passionate about seeing souls saved. In fact, the Bible even gives us a, a, an idea of the busyness of the ministry in Acts chapter six, where the preachers and the overseers of the church have to select out deacons because the work of the ministry is getting to the point so much so that they're not having time to pray and labor in the word. Did you know it takes some time to make a sermon? They don't have time to go about visiting all the widows and the fatherless. And so they say, let us select out men in the church unpaid positions that can care for the work of the ministry while the preacher labors in word and in the study of the scriptures and in prayer. So biblically speaking, it is okay for a pastor to be paid as long as that pastor is focusing on what is right. What is right is truth. And if that pastor is focusing and working and laboring in truth and praying for you and caring for the congregation, it's not wrong for him to draw a salary. And you can look through Scripture. This is some of my personal beliefs. I think that throughout Scripture you find that there is a reason that the church is not always in the home. I think your, your home ought to be churchy. 
In the early New Testament church, we find that many of the churches were in homes. The reason being is because persecution was following the church. And they were meeting in a very similar fashion to those that met in China this morning. As they went to church, they met in disguise, underground, if you will. So they kind of switched from house to house and the church hasn't really grown. And, and so they're, they're doing it in disguise, clandestine, if you will. And so that's the way the early church began. But you can look through Scripture that there were times when God instructed Moses to take the tent of meeting outside of the camp and anybody that wanted to meet with God would have to leave their tent and go to the tent of meeting where God was. You say, that's Old Testament. But if if we're worshiping God in our pajamas, how sincere and how just... Do you think we're really getting the sense of awe if we're just in our jammies? If we wake up, watch Sports Center, eat a bowl of Cheerios, and then have our Bible study at home, do you think that's the way that God planned this? So my point is this. That preacher's idea may be a good idea, but it's not a biblical one. And that's forgetting all of this that Why are we as Christians so worried about God providing the needs of His church? Are you serious right now? What kind of church looks at that big of God and says, I just don't know if we're going to be able to pay the air conditioning bill this week. But my God shall supply all of your need according to your riches in your bank account? No, It's a foolish idea at the very onset. How can the church that doesn't have enough faith to to pay a utility bill really make a difference for the cause of Christ? So it might be a good idea, but it's not a godly idea. And I only use this as one example. There are a lot of good ideas circulating in Christianity right now that are not biblical or godly ideas. There's a lot of things that are circulating that are not godly ideas. They're just good ideas. My point is this, if it does not agree with this book, it does not agree with God. The word of God was given to us and it is a very powerful word indeed. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God always prevails in every situation. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, So shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, is not, uh, it shall not return me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. The word of God is permanent. That's why we don't need to look for a new version or a new book. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible even says... Thy word, O God, is forever settled in heaven. It's settled in heaven, and yet we can't get it settled here in America. It's forever settled. It's permanent. The Bible says about itself that it is perfect, or it helps perfect us. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Sanctify us through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It purifies us. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that he gave the church his word that he might sanctify it and cleanse it and with the water or the washing of the water by the word. The word of God produces faith in the Christian life. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, so then faith cometh by hearing.
hearing and hearing not by the preacher and hearing not by the Bible study, but hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is so important in the Christian life. Psalm chapter 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. In keeping of them there is great reward. The Bible ought to be the final authority in all Christians' lives. And one very easy way to regulate and to discern the difference between that which is good and that which is godly is if it checks off the first box that it agrees with this book, it might just be godly. I can say that the failure of the 21st century church is directly linked to what we've done with God's word. Men of faith, like Martin Luther said many years ago, for some years now I have read through the Bible twice every year. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of these branches because I wanted to know what it was and what it meant. A great man of God by the name of C.H. Spurgeon said, If you wish to know God, you must know His word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he worketh by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it is actually brought to pass, you can only discover it by his word. And we wonder how God used men like that. I can tell you how God used men like that. Because they understood his word and the power of it. And the reason we have powerless preachers today is preachers don't understand the word and they don't present the word. They're more... They're more worried about preaching a sermon that appeals to the masses and telling a funny story or a funny joke. But I'm telling you, that does not have power to convert the soul. It is the perfect law of liberty that has that power. So if it's going to be godly, it must agree with God's word in every way. Number two, godly things are always motivated by God. Good things are not. Godly things are always motivated by God. Remember earlier in our kind of example of the young man helping the elderly lady with the groceries? What was his motivation? My dad taught me a long time ago, motives really matter. The why in what you're doing is very important. It's almost as important as the how you do it. You've got to understand that motives matter and God motivates His children to do things and when He does, it can be godly. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. Why were these men that Paul is warning Timothy about, why were they the way that they were? Well, you can see in verse number 4, He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. But one of the reasons that they were the way that they were is because they were full of pride. Every idea they had, they thought was a good one. Have you ever met somebody like that? They can 
speak out some of the most profound foolishness you've ever heard, and yet to them it makes a lot of sense. And these men were prideful. 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 5, we read this already, but the Bible says, they had a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. In other words, they had a resemblance of God, but God's stamp of authority was not on them. They thought they had it. It's kind of like that guy who tries to cast out the demon, y'all know, or seven men, I think is how many there were. Seven men, they try to cast out the, guy, uh, the demon in the, in the man, and, and the, the man says, Paul I know, Christ I know, or Jesus I know, but who are you? <laughs> they thought they had it. They thought they had it, and yet they did not have it. They may think they have God's stamp of approval, but God has not stamped their ministry. And that's the people Paul is warning Timothy about. We must worry about who motivates our actions. Why do we do the things that we do, Christian? You see, some things in the Bible were good, but God didn't necessarily put a stamp of approval on them. You remember when uh, David was kind of one day thinking to himself, And the idea came to him that he wanted to build a house for God. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, Now it came to pass, as David sat in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. And it came to pass the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me in house to dwell in. Now that has to be puzzling because I think we'd all agree it's good any time a church goes up. It would have been awesome for the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence to have a place, a house for Him. And I believe that God doesn't deserve second best. I believe that anything that we do ought to be done excellently, decently, and in order. We ought to put forth our best effort. And I think that when David decided to build a house for God, he was imagining like fountains with angels in them overlaid with gold. And I'm telling you, I mean, he was going to do it big. I mean, he was going to have overlaid with gold everything. I mean, he's going to have curtains of gold. And I just, I can just imagine though, I, I, I kind of picture the idea as he says, I have a house of cedars, but God's house, man, it's going to be great. And God says, no, I don't want you to build it. It's a good idea, David, but it's not a godly one. Now, we can't always understand the mind of God, but can you understand tonight that it was a good idea for David to have? And in fact, I think it was awesome that God allowed him to prepare a lot of the materials, but he says, David, you're not going to build it. Your son's going to build it. Good idea, but not an idea that I gave you. There's another time in Scripture in the book of Acts when the church is beginning to grow. Paul's sent on his first missionary journey. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 16, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now if you don't understand what that's saying, twice Paul sets his mind to go to a place Asia being the first place, and then Bithynia the second place. And God says, it's a good idea, Paul, but not a godly one. It's a good idea, and we'll get there. 
but not right now. Let me show you a little bit about this. Now, if I have, I have a lot of weaknesses, but biblical geography is definitely one of those, okay? I think that uh, I read through some of the places in the Bible and I struggle with that, but let me give you an idea of what Paul was wanting to do. Now, this makes such logical sense from a missionary point of view. You see there, Asia is right there. It's a country and you have Ephesus being the city. Now, we all have heard of Ephesus, but Asia is not the same Asia that we have today. There, when the Bible says that Paul wanted to go to Asia, more than likely, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. It had not yet been reached with the gospel. Now, if you look at it, there's a significance to Ephesus being that it is a coastal city on the border of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, that would have been a huge city. It would have led in art and all sorts of things. But more importantly, it would have had people coming in and out of it all the time. There was a lot of people going through it. Now, if I'm going to start a church, I'm going to pray that God puts me in a place with more than 20 people. And this is what Paul's logic, I think, was. I'm going to start a church in New York City. You know, it's right there on the, on the edge of the water. I mean, we got a lot of uh, uh, people coming in there. And I just think that, that we can have a lot of success by planting a church in Ephesus. And then he says, then he wanted to go up to Bithynia. Now, do you see Bithynia up there? Look at it. It's, on the, it's a coastal country there on the border of the Black Sea. And so this is what I imagine Paul is thinking. I mean, we'd have two strongholds. If God allowed us to build a church in Ephesus and Bithynia, man, can you imagine the traffic, the influx of people coming through there? Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's a good idea, but it's not a God-given idea. Here's the concern that I have as pastor. I have got to make sure that every ministry we start Every program we choose, every missionary we support is not a good idea, but it is a God-given idea. You know why? Because the wise man's plans fail. The rich man's riches, they go away. But the word of my God, it stands forever. So we must make sure that everything in our life is not just a good thing. It's not just a good idea, but it is God working in our life and motivating us to do something for Him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You say, Brother Andrew, you've had a, you ever had a good idea? I have lots of good ideas, and I tell our youth workers all the time, every good idea is just moments away from glorious failure or fantastic success. We've got to make sure that if we're going to operate in this church, if we're going to be people trying to do something for the glory of God, it must be God-given. And if it's God-given, it will be God-supported. And that's the only ministry I want to be a part of. So... Godly things, number one, always completely aligned with Scripture. Number two, godly things are always motivated by God. It may be a good thing if you want to do it, but you've got to make sure it's a godly thing. And then number three, godly things are always designed to bring Him glory. 
good things do not. Good things bring other people glory. Godly things are there for the purpose of glorifying God. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 5, the Bible says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. Well, the gain of what? I think you could say the gain of wealth, the gain of popularity, the gain of fame, the gain of credentials. And these men were in the ministry. These men were preaching and teaching for the purpose because as long as they had a big following and a healthy supporter base, they considered that to be equal with godliness. That's not what God says. God says uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. These people were in it for themselves. Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 4, these men were traitors, heady, high-minded. Notice this. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. What did they want? What were they trying to get? Oh, they were just trying to make sure that they were taken care of and they could do the things that they wanted. As far as getting God involved, they didn't care too much about that. We've got to make sure that everything that we do in our life is for the purpose of bringing God glory. He is so worthy of our glory, we ought to give it to Him preacher preached on this the other day, but he preaches on a lot of things that I want to preach on, and I dare not preach on it right after him. I need to let y'all forget it before I ever preach on it again. But the other day he preached on Lot. And he didn't necessarily speak on this part, but there was a moment in time where Lot and Abraham, they were fine with one another, but their herdsmen, their shepherds began to kind of get into fights and there was strife between them. So Abraham brought the idea to Lot and said, we need, to, we need to separate. My herdsmen can't get along with your herdsmen. And so Lot, you choose any way that you want to choose. You can go east, west, north, south, whatever, and I'll go the complete opposite direction. Now the Bible tells us, a lot of you are familiar with this passage, that Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld the well-watered plains of Sodom. Now, if you were in Lot's mind, it made a lot of sense to choose that direction. At the end of the day, he had herds, and he was trying to feed those herds. And I don't know if you know this, but herds need grass. Herds need food. And when you look at one pasture that's a lot greener and a lot fuller of grass, you're just going to set your herd in that. And so it made a lot of sense for him to go that direction. If we could have asked a financial planner what direction Lot needed to head, what would they have said? Oh, go, go towards the well-watered plains of Sodom, Lot. Make, this is obvious. Everything else is wilderness. You go that direction. If we could have asked, let's say, a real estate investor, Lot, you can go any direction, but you need to go the direction where the real estate... You know, you get closer to the city. Uh, city property is going to be a lot more than country property. It's not the way it is here, by the way. But, but you, you go towards the city, you, you, it'll be much more valuable land that direction. So you ask a real estate agent, which way would they have said? Oh, you, you need to go to the well-watered plains of Sodom. You ask a Christian counselor what direction he should have he- headed. And, he, and the counselor would say, well, you probably, it would make a lot of sense for you to go that way. Abraham's your only connection. I mean, you don't really have a lot of friends. There's going to be a lot more friends towards Sodom and Gomorrah. You need, you need some supporters. You need some relationships. And so you just head that way. From every sense, it made more sense for Lot to go that direction. 
But we know how the story ends up, don't we? The Bible tells us that Lot was a good guy. In fact, the Bible says he was a righteous soul and he vexed his soul seeing and hearing their evil deeds daily. It made sense for him to go that direction. But you know why Lot made the decision to go that direction? Him. It made sense. It made sense for his wealth. It made sense for his security. We find out that later on he's in Sodom and Gomorrah. He has a position of authority in the city. I mean, it made sense for him. You know who Lot never considered? God. Not once. He never considered, how can God receive glory from the decision I'm about to make? If Lot would have been smart, he would have probably fired that herdsman that couldn't get along with the Abraham herdsman. He would have probably just stayed right there with old Uncle Abe because, after all, that's the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. But Lot never considered what was better for God. He only considered what was better for him. That's what we do. That's what we do. You know how many people I've seen come to this church just get on fire for the Lord and for 35 cents an hour raise, move off and take their family to a place they don't even know anybody? Do you think they considered what was good for God in that situation? Or do you think they considered what was good for them? My point is not that God can't move people away from Joshua Baptist Church. My point is this. Oftentimes we only focus on how can I accomplish this task when we ought to be focusing on this. How can God receive glory if I accomplish this task? We've got to focus on God. This thing is not about us. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Christian, how did you glorify God this week? If you have trouble searching, that's not good. How did you bring glory to God's name this week? This past week, I guess it was uh, the end of last week, so about two weeks ago now, we had Brother Troy Bartley's funeral We had it out at Laurel Land, and I remember um, going to the funeral, and I want to say a special thank you to Miss Dyer for uh, making the line to see Brother Troy especially longer, Um, but uh, that's more to that story, but um, we had a good time. It was a good funeral. Preacher, man, I'm telling you what, he preached good, and here's the thing about preacher's funeral message. I was in tears, and I've heard it like 20 times. It's just powerful. When you start to think that we see on the underside of death, he uses, I've stolen it before, I'm definitely going to steal it again. It uses this illustration about his mom, uh, Granny B, his mom, working with all the ladies of the town on this quilt, and it's hanging from the ceiling. All these kids get up under there, they look at the underside of the quilt, and man, it's just ugly, and they're thinking, he always makes it funny. He says, these women must be the stupidest women. I mean, it's just really funny. But then he says one day they turn the quilt over and it becomes beautiful. And he says, what we're seeing now is the underside of death. It's going to be beautiful one day when we get to be reunited with Brother Troy. He's right now looking at the face. Of the I mean, and I'm literally in tears. And I've heard that so many times. He did a fantastic job. We step outside of the funeral home and, and there we are. We're waiting on everybody to get done. And I look around and I, I just take note. That's a beautiful Cemetery. I mean, they keep it so well manicured. A lot of the uh, headstones, they have flowers. And I mean, 
Uh, it's just a beautiful place. But six feet underground, at the end of the day, it's full of rotting corpses. And I don't mean to get vulgar or try to make anything nasty. I'm just saying we can beautify things all we want. What's underneath matters. And when it comes to the reason why Christians do things, it's not always what they're doing, but it's the why behind what they're doing. In fact, you say, Brother Andrew, I can't believe you would say that about the graveyard. The idea wasn't mine, guys. I have to be real honest with you. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, graveyards, cemeteries that are painted beautiful on the outside, which indeed are beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men. You have a form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof, because within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Christian, I'm not a wise man, but I believe underneath the surface of every godly action is the Spirit of God working in the Christian's heart to manifest a work that will bring glory to God. The root of every action in the Christian life, if it is to be godly, ought to bring God glory. Every song we sing on this platform ought not be so that we can hear, oh boy, have you been getting voice lessons? I went to North Carolina. We sang two trips ago in my wife's former church and they were kind. They're just a bunch of really kind people from North Carolina. But then this last time we went, this one lady came up to me and she said, Brother Andrew, man, have you been getting lessons? You just did such a better job this time than you did the last time. <laughs> and I said, thank you, I think. Uh, uh, but, you know, we don't sing these songs to hear our, our names just, uh, you know, complimented. And, oh, Brother Andrew, what a good job. We don't preach these sermons so that you can come up and say, Brother Andrew, what a sermon. I mean, that really moved me. At the end of every action, at the root of every action, ought to be the desire for the Christian to glorify God. And whether it's knocking on doors or driving a bus or whether it's uh, uh, folding papers or stacking bulletins or passing them out or opening a door or whether it's fixing a water fountain, whatever it is, make sure that the root of every action in your life is glorifying to God. And if so, it very well may be godly. I don't want to be a good Christian. I want to be a godly Christian. And the difference is, if it agrees with Scripture, the difference is who is motivating what you're doing. And the difference is who gets the credit when you do something well.